1: Because State Farm agents are small business owners, too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today.
0: Hey, stay tuned, listeners. On Wednesday, February 5th, I'll be live in New York City with GOP political consultant Rick Wilson to talk about my book, Doing Justice, which just came out in paperback. Of course, there will be plenty of other things to discuss, too. Get your tickets before it's too late at symphonyspace.org. That's symphonyspace.org. From CAFE, welcome to Stay Tuned.
2: I'm Preet Bharara. I think that there is a pretty high likelihood that we will go through elections in November and there will be a winner and we will not know if that person is going to be president in 2021. I think there's a relatively high likelihood of that.
0: That's Ian Bremer. He's the founder and president of Eurasia Group, a leading global political risk and research firm. Bremer is also the president of G Zero Media, which features videos, short explainers, and podcasts that help break down complex geopolitical events. In 2001, Bremer launched the world's first Global Political Risk Index, a list of stability ratings for emerging market countries. And each year, Eurasia Group publishes their list of the top risks threatening our world. Bremer joined me last year to talk about the top risks in 2019. And now he's back to talk about this year, 2020, which places the upcoming presidential election as the most pressing global threat. He'll tell us why. We also talk about the technological decoupling of the U.S. and China, the atmosphere at the recent World Economic Forum in Davos, and Bremer's Twitter spat with President Trump. But first, let's get to your questions. Stay tuned.
2: Hi, Preet. My name is Adam
0: from Chicago. Love the show. My question for you is about semantics. The president has been impeached on articles of obstruction of Congress and abuse of power. But still, I hear political commentators and Republicans say that or they debate that those are not impeachable. But the president has been impeached on those counts. So my question is, what is the semantics here? Because I can easily see Adam Schiff saying something like, well, he's been impeached for those. So they are obviously impeachable. But I take it to mean that those political commentators and Republicans are saying that he shouldn't be
2: convicted on those. So what is the proper wording for something that is impeachable and has yet to be determined for whether or not it's convicted? Help me out with your wording here. Thank you very much. Bye-bye.
0: Hey, Adam, thanks for your question, and I think you get right to the heart of it in terms of semantics. I think a lot of people conflate the two things, confuse the two things, impeachment and conviction. Of course, the parallel that people make to ordinary criminal practice is that impeachment is just the first phase in the same way that an indictment or the bringing of an accusation through a grand jury is the first phase in a traditional criminal case. The most important part, then, is the judgment that's rendered or not rendered in the trial phase. In fairness to the people who call certain kinds of conduct unimpeachable— notwithstanding the fact that President Trump has been impeached by a very, very lopsided vote on partisan lines in the House, in fairness to those people, I guess they could say, yeah, we understand that as a fact he was impeached, but it's not conduct for which he should have been impeached. So they they can still maintain their opposition to it. And in fact, a huge number of House Republicans, by their vote, said it was unimpeachable conduct. But yes, I think you're correct that when people are making these arguments now, that we're in the Senate phase, the trial phase, that what they're meaning to say is, that this conduct does not rise to the level of conviction and removal. And just to go back to a point that I think bears repeating as many times as one is able to repeat it, because it's a fundamental defense of Donald Trump, put forward by a lot of his supporters, his lawyers, and in particular, Alan Dershowitz, that one reason this conduct is not impeachable or not conduct for which he should be convicted and removed is that the articles of impeachment have to set forth an explicit crime, like something from the criminal code, For a lot of reasons that we've discussed on Stay Tuned and on the Insider podcast, that is not so. Among other things, by the way, the people who are saying, well, you can't actually have impeachment or even conviction on the idea of abuse of power, they may be forgetting that there were articles of impeachment both against Nixon and against Clinton that were styled as abuse of power and didn't set forth an actual criminal violation. This next question comes in an email from Dave who's asking about a New York Times piece written by Neil Katyal, Joshua Geltzer, and Mickey Edwards called John Roberts can call witnesses to Trump's trial, will he? And Dave's question is, I would like to hear your thoughts on the article's premise of John Roberts having much more powers to direct the trial than the public has been made aware of, and that the Senate needs two-thirds and not a majority to overrule him. If this is all true, it looks to be a game changer and puts John in the driver's seat. Whether he likes it or not, thank you. So I think it's an interesting article, and the three gentlemen who penned it are very, very smart people and very experienced people and have a lot of experience with constitutional law and with John Roberts. And you may have seen that our very own Ellie Honig, a former colleague of mine from SDNY, wrote a piece on the powers that John Roberts can assert in the CAFE brief last week. And if you haven't seen it, you can find it at cafecom brief. So the way I think about this is not through a legal lens. And there are arguments to be made, as these folks have made, that John Roberts can assert various powers if he wants. And there are varying arguments about what it would take to overrule John Roberts. But the fact of the matter is that it's up to John Roberts to decide to assert various authorities that he arguably has. And it's not a clear slam dunk that he has those powers. And I don't think it's a clear slam dunk that the Senate needs two thirds to overrule him. Remember, by the way, that the only precedent in the last century and a half for a trial of this nature of the president of the United States was 21 years ago when the presiding Supreme Court Chief Justice was William Rehnquist, who, by the way, incidentally, John Roberts clerked for after law school. And Chief Justice Rehnquist, in presiding over the Clinton impeachment trial, aside from the flourish of wearing certain stripes on his black robe, did not take an active role. It does not seem to be in the temperament of John Roberts to assert himself in a major way and weigh in on a dramatic conflict about who should be called and the relevance of witnesses when the rules of the Senate provide for that being done by votes in the Senate. He doesn't seem like the kind of person who's going to take that kind of activist position, especially when the relevant precedent from 21 years ago of his mentor and former boss is one of being relatively reserved. And by the way, you've seen in the last week that there have been opportunities for John Roberts to assert himself and maybe derail a line of argument, uh, and he has not done so. As far as I could tell, aside from one post-1 a.m. admonition to the parties to be civil on the first day, he's been pretty much quiet. There'll be another opportunity in the next couple of days during the question period to see if John Roberts is the kind of Chief Justice presiding at the Senate trial who wants to assert himself a little bit more. Well short of making a decision about relevance of future witnesses, but what's gonna happen over the next couple of days is it's gonna be Chief Justice Roberts reciting questions written by senators and putting them to the Trump lawyers and to the House managers. Now, in an ordinary courtroom, you would expect a judge who is in command of the proceedings after asking a question penned by a senator and receiving a response that was less than adequate or off point or full of distraction, might ask a follow-up, worded in his own language. I've seen judges do that at trial all the time. Will he do that? I doubt it. I don't think Rehnquist did. And so, if you're not going to see John Roberts taking an active role in policing the questioning and doing follow-up questioning, then, with all due respect to these folks who have written about the power that John Roberts can assert, even if he is able, I don't think he's willing to assert it. I remember also, you know, John Roberts may take seriously that the Senate has the sole power of impeachment. It's really not a judicial process. And there's also the embarrassment to himself and the institution of the court, arguably, if he does assert himself more and make some controversial decision, and then does get overruled again and again and again. And it's not the kind of thing I think John Roberts wants to stick his neck out for. But I could be wrong. I want to address one more issue with respect to the impeachment trial. And it's something that broke last night media outlets began reporting that Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader, announced to the caucus that he did not have the votes yet to forestall the calling of witnesses. And as you may remember, there need to be, if all Democrats vote for witnesses or particular witnesses, they still need four Republican senators to join them. There's a possibility that Mitt Romney will, especially with respect to John Bolton. It's possible Susan Collins will, maybe Lisa Murkowski. If all those three vote for John Bolton, for example, they still need one more. And so there was a lot of, celebrating on the part of folks who think that a fair trial requires witnesses. And the polls show that 70 or 75% of Americans think the trial should have witnesses. And common sense tells you that every trial should have witnesses. History tells you that of all 15 impeachment trials ever held in the Senate, each and every one of them had witnesses. Remember, impeachment trials don't only occur with respect to the president. They can occur with respect to lower officers, including judges, too. They just don't get as much attention. But there's always been witnesses. I would just caution people on how savvy and smart Mitch McConnell is, and it may be, in fact, true that at the time he made those statements, he couldn't be quite assured that he had enough Republicans in line to avoid witnesses being called. But it also could be a ploy that I've seen Mitch McConnell use before, both from a distance and up close, to put the fear of God in senators in his caucus who are thinking of straying from the pack and voting in favor of witnesses. So that knowing a vote on those things is not going to happen for one, two, or three days. It gives the opportunity for people who are supporters of the president of the United States to put pressure on those senators to get in line. And it's rare that Mitch McConnell is not able to keep his folks in line. So I don't think, notwithstanding that admission by Mitch McConnell yesterday, notwithstanding common sense, and notwithstanding principles of fairness, I think it's not a foregone conclusion whatsoever that we're going to get a witness, not even John Bolton. There are articles as I walked into the studio today that I looked at that suggested the White House is making a very, very strong argument to senators, not on principles of fairness, but in the interests of time and politics, that they should vote against witnesses, making the argument, as I understand it, that once they open the door to a witness or two witnesses, that the proceedings in the Senate will drag on for weeks or months approaching the time of the election because there will be protracted court fights about executive privilege and other things, betting on the idea that senators who, especially those who are up for re-election in November of this year, don't want that. They want this done. They want this finished. And maybe it's the lesser of two evils for them, even electorally, to take a bad vote, get it behind us, and hope people have moved on to other things by the time we get to November. Those are the arguments that are being made. I don't know if they have force or weight with respect to enough senators. Remains to be seen. And maybe this will be answered before this podcast even airs. But I think it's a very, very fluid situation with respect to witnesses. Look, in the same way, by the way, it calls to mind a little bit, you know, the final moments of the hearing for the confirmation of Justice Brett Kavanaugh. There was this question about whether or not they should hear from someone else or not. And at the very last minute, Jeff Flake, if memory serves, decided that they should extend the confirmation hearing. At the end of the day, the vote was still the same as what people predicted. Brett Kavanaugh was confirmed, and that may also happen here, that a vote for acquittal still seems all but assured even if there's a brief hiccup here in the plans of Mitch McConnell. Basically, the White House's argument to senators is something like, this is a Pandora's box you're opening. And it may seem well and good and nice and logical to say, as a matter of principle, there should be witnesses and maybe John Bolton should testify. But then we're going to have a fight about Joe Biden. And then we're going to have a fight about Hunter Biden. And then the Democrats and the House managers are going to fight over Mick Mulvaney and some other people from the Office of Management and Budget, the OMB. And it's just going to be a mess. And you know what? You should avoid the mess and just shut this thing down. You know, of course, part of the mess is this question of a witness trade, which I've never heard of before. Obviously, in any normal proceeding, both sides have the ability to call witnesses and should call witnesses, but they need to be relevant. I'm not going to rehash here all the reasons why Joe and Hunter Biden are not relevant to the question of the guilt of Donald Trump with respect to the articles of impeachment and his state of mind because they're not at all. But since, going back to an earlier question, Chief Justice John Roberts is not asserting himself in any way, shape, or form on what is relevant or what is not at a trial, it doesn't matter. I mean, I heard Joe Manchin, who's from West Virginia, where there are a lot of Trump supporters, openly consider the possibility of Hunter Biden being a relevant witness. So these things are being decided not just on the merits, not just on the rules of evidence. They're being decided based on political considerations and efficacy considerations. And so we'll see. But I think the driving narrative Of having a trial to decide the guilt or innocence of Donald Trump on these articles of impeachment with no witnesses being called looks absolutely terrible for the president and his supporters. And I think that's the reason why you're getting some Republicans wavering, maybe not enough, maybe not any, but at least contemplating some middle road so they can make the argument to constituents that it was somewhat of a fair process and they could get on with it because it will look ridiculous if this trial comes to a close, without hearing from John Bolton. And then John Bolton goes on his book tour in six weeks and says all these things that might have borne on the guilt or innocence of Donald Trump, I think it just looks terrible. And they know it. Stay tuned. There's more coming up right after this. Support for Stay Tuned comes from Mint Mobile, If there's one thing that all former U.S. attorneys for the Southern District of New York have in common, it's that we love a good sauce. It's even rumored, although I can't fact-check this, that Ogden Hoffman, who served in the position from 1841 to 1845, never ate a meal dry. Now you're probably asking, what does sauce have to do with my cell phone bill? It's because Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell all of their wireless services online. They cut out the cost of retail stores, and pass those sweet savings directly to you. For a limited time, their premium wireless plans are just $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. To get the new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, you can go to mintmobile.com slash preet. That's mintmobile.com slash preet. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash preet. $45 upfront payment required. Equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on an unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Support for Stay Tuned comes from Squarespace. In this day and age, if you're starting a new project, one of the first things on your to-do list is creating a website. That might seem a bit scary at first, especially if you've never done it before. But there are tools out there that make it easy for anyone to create their own site, like Squarespace. Squarespace is an all-in-one platform that you can use to build a website and help people find your ventures. Creating a website with Squarespace is straightforward and painless, even if it's your first time making one. Whether you want to sell your products or a service, or need a place to host your blog or portfolio, Squarespace can help you get your name out there and makes it easy to find on the web. My guest this week is Ian Bremmer. He's the president and founder of Eurasia Group, a risk research firm at the forefront of predicting global threats. He's a busy guy. Along with assessing risk, he's also the host of the podcast G Zero World with Ian Bremmer, an author, and an editor-at-large and foreign affairs columnist at Time Magazine. Bremmer joins me to talk about the Eurasia Group's top risks for 2020. What's number one? United States politics. And it's the first time that a domestic U.S. issue has ever occupied the top spot. We also talk about the long-term risks of China's economic ascendance, why war with Iran is probably not on the immediate horizon, in his view, and why Trump might actually be a globalist. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Ian Bremmer, thanks for being back on the show. Preet, you're my man. <laughs> That's what they all say. No, they don't let's, all let's say let's, let's just see how the interview goes. Okay, fine. So, I mean, I'm back. So You can, are back. Yeah. You are back. I mean, it took a year. Yeah. for me to get up the courage to have you back. <laughs> uh, so, so you have your new Top Risks report out. We're going to get to that in a minute. But first, I wanted to ask you about where you've been recently. I understand that you have recently returned from Davos. Yeah, yep. it's a couple of days where, ago. Where they have what's called the World Economic Forum. Hmm? So can you describe what Davos is like? Because those of us who have never been, never been invited, you know, wonder, are there sort of fountains of champagne? Are there truckloads of caviar everywhere you go?
2: It's three thousand it like? people, delegates, who are all principals of their various organizations, their decision makers, or in Davos parlance, stakeholders. And they're going there primarily because they can get their time as their most valuable resource, and they don't. And given that, they don't care how much they pay to improve the efficiency of their time, and they get more done with that concentration of other stakeholders in five days than they can probably do in a month anywhere else. Um, Having said that, and then there's also a constellation of hangers-on who have an economy of being close to people who make decisions or are in power. And that's an interesting thing that people that are outside the Congress Center, but nonetheless find this very important. You try, that's a gray zone, gray economy. But perhaps the most interesting thing about Davos is that it's been going on for 50 years now. And for most of the history of Davos, the explicit ideology of the place, which is promoting globalization and globalism, so the idea that, you know, it's good for everyone to take advantage of more and more open borders, free trade, you know, sort of free migration and free market, for 50 years, mostly that has been a resurgent and increasingly dominant ideology that is clearly not true anymore. And it's not true in part because the elites in the West are seen as increasingly nefarious, by their own populations. And it's also not true because a lot of other countries out there, especially China, are building an alternative architecture to what the WEF is all about. And so that made this forum much more, let's say, challenged in its self-satisfaction than I've seen for many years. So, So why do you go? Well, I go because if you're in the kind of business that I'm in, which is trying to understand how the world works from a content perspective, you're talking to a whole bunch of people that otherwise you'd have to travel an immense amount to get to see all of them, and also because so many of the people that are relevant to my business are there from a client perspective as well. So, I mean, five days of Davos is really—it's uh, there's no other place like it in a good way,
0: in a bad way, in a strange way. In a stimulating way, how much diversity of opinion is there?
2: There's there's less diversity of opinion than you'd like. I mean, these are people from Singapore, New York, London, Moscow. Heck, um, I was with the Minister of Finance from Zimbabwe, but who had a foreign Western de- advanced degree, who have vastly more in common with each other than they usually do with people that live five miles down the road in their own countries. And that is a big part of the problem uh, that we have in the world today. So it's fascinating. So is that it's a like... criticism
0: of, of the World Economic Forum?
2: Um, the World Economic Forum is a platform. Their ability to move the discourse is dramatically less. They tried to this year. They invited Greta Thunberg. She was there and she was um, got a lot of attention. They put climate as the Dominant issue on the public agenda.
0: How, how is Greta Thunberg received?
2: Uh, well, uh, as a spectacle, mostly. Everyone was interested in swarming her and getting their photo of her and all of that kind of thing. But if you ask, you know, in terms of climate agenda, the average WEF delegate is much more aligned with Donald Trump than they are with Greta Thunberg. And that is an unfortunate reality, but one that needs to be remarked upon. And that is less the fault of the WEF than it is the reality of what global elites and decision-makers are all about and why we're in this pickle with climate to begin with.
0: So Donald Trump went. Yeah, for a second time, yeah. How was he received? And how was his speech in particular received?
2: Uh, The only applause line he got was when he uh, promised that he was going to be a part of this trillion tree Um, you know, thing. I think he liked it just because it's a really big number. You know, (laughs) Trump, he doesn't say trillion very often. Sometimes he says gazillion. He could say gazillion, but that's not a real number. But trillion, unless you want to talk about the U.S. debt, it's very hard to bring <laughs> right. up trillions, right? So this was exciting for him. He didn't get applause lines otherwise. But but when you left the speech, and, 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 you know, the speech was kind of unremarkable. I mean, there was an enormous amount of exaggeration, but it was also basically on script. He didn't ad lib. He didn't do a lot of stuff on impeachment, all that. no, And no one talked about impeachment all week. I was, was going to ask,
0: that was not a big topic. It wasn't, it wasn't a topic at all. At all. At all, no. You also wrote that the attendees at the World Economic Forum this year were less hostile to or less perplexed by or some other verb, Donald Trump, than they were two years ago. Clearly true. How has that come to pass?
2: Well, one, because a lot of um, the statements he made about free trade, which really concerned them two years ago, uh, they now see as either not having much of a fist inside the glove or having been resolved in their favor. U.S., Mexico, Canada, U.S., China, phase one, Japan, South Korea, even the EU, which is the proximate danger, both sides took a pretty significant step away over the course of the last few weeks for imminent tariffs. And that's something, that's probably the principal issue that most attendees would have a significant problem with Trump on. They obviously like his tax policies. They obviously like his regulatory rollback. I mean, he's been business friendly. Uh, You know, you have more significant, if you go back to three years ago when he first became president, there were very few Democrats that believed that the U.S. economy would be doing as well today as it is after three years of Trump. The beneficiaries of those sets of policies are largely the people that attend the World Economic Forum. So I suppose it should not be surprising, even if it might be a little disturbing, that most of them are much more comfortable with Trump winning a second term, and believe he will, than they would be certainly with Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren. But frankly, many of them, even some of those center but further left candidates that are plausible from the democratic side
0: so going back to what you were saying earlier about the lack of diversity there and how maybe the world economic forum is less relevant and less influential than it was because the domestic populations of some of the folks who go there have a different point of view than they might have a few years
2: ago definitely do we need a davos do we who's we the world Uh, i don't i mean it's hard to say it's hard to say
0: has it outlasted its influence
2: it certainly outlasted its monopoly global influence, right? I mean, that, that's true. I mean, it was in some ways the organization that put out some of the ideas that were dominant among global thinkers for a long time that were received wisdom. And I don't think that's true anymore. And I think they're aware of that. But, you know, let's also recognize that no matter what the agenda of Davos may be, whether it's climate or inequality or AI and the fourth industrial revolution, which was coined by Klaus Schwab, that term, which is also freighted with ideology, the people that are going there are actually most interested in making sure that their businesses are successful. And frankly, an organization that helps to ensure that the profitability and productivity of the private sector is high On balance is something that is good for the world if you also have global governance structures that are regulating those companies, those private sectors effectively, if you have social contracts that actually work. So, I mean, on balance, I want companies to do better as opposed to worse because companies that are doing worse are not thinking about how they can share wealth, how they can spend on things that will help the rest of the world. There's gonna be a lot less focus on climate when we're down cycle economically than when we're in up cycle economically. We need to understand that. But what I think is broken is much deeper than just talking about the World Economic Forum. It's much more failure of governance. That's what I would say.
0: Last question on Davos. Is it odd that Donald Trump seeks to go there with great fanfare, given that he is, I believe, in his own words, by his speeches, anti-globalist, whatever that means, anti-elitist, whatever that means. And here you have a collection of
2: arguably elitist globalists. Well, he says he's anti-mainstream media too, you know, the enemies he of the people, but he Mainstream loves being media, on, right. he needs to be on, he needs to dominate every day. So first of all, the fact that this is where the attention of the Western media is going to be concentrated the most for those five days, means that if he's not there, he's not getting as much attention. So it's not in any way a surprise that it is important for him to be there. He may not like the elites, but he desperately craves their attention, their adulation, and frankly, to be one of them, right? So I'm not surprised at all.
0: I mean, that's the weird thing, right? He desperately wants to be a part of these cultures and circles that sometimes reject him, including the mainstream media.
2: Right. And again, he's fundamentally much more of a globalist in both his history, his business activities, his media activities, and now his policies than people like Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren. I mean, if, you know, it may be that in terms of his personal character, his upbringing, his vulgarity, he's not Davos man. He's not the, he doesn't behave in the way one should act. He's not good with tea sandwiches, right? Uh
0: but, <laughs> but, may be uh, a point in his favor.
2: Well, he's more Big Mac than teeth sandwiches, and Davos is more tea sandwiches than Big Mac. I don't think there there isn't a well, McDonald's in Davos. Well, I grew up in the projects, and I'm glad that I'm not there anymore. So, I mean, you told me. So does that me, mean tea sandwiches or or, Big uh, Ma- or something in between? I, I mean, something Shake in, Shack. Uh, no, no. I mean, like I actually I want to eat healthy. Frankly, I mean, I doesn't have to be tea sandwiches, but I'm probably more like you know sushi, chicken soup. I mean, just I want to know where my food came from. Processed is not good for my perspective. sushi in the chicken soup that could work. Oh, those are two different things. Those could be the same thing. I mean, there's rice. You know, if you want to throw some fish on. I, I, yes, I'm not in any way surprised that Trump is aligned with Davos. I'm not in any way surprised that the Davos folks are more comfortable with Trump than they want to admit. And that Greta was, you know, a nice shiny object, but at the end of the day is kind of going to be a sad bump in the road for where the private sector and the public sector are speeding ahead. Let's Good. get to the set of We're not having fun. We're, we're talking very seriously. And I feel like we need to be like I'm going to have fun going a moment off cheese a bit since we're talking <laughs> about moment. Davos. We need to hit I've, some cheese. I have a few things to mock you about. Really? Which okay. I didn't get a chance to last time. Yeah. Damn. i mocking me. <laughs> I'm going to um, have some stuff for you, too. You have
0: a lot of buttons on your shirt undone. For example, I have two right now. That seems to be twice as many as necessary. But twice as many as you do. It's drive time with okay. Ian Bremmer. Yeah. <laughs> uh, callers. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, top risks 2020. Just could you remind folks, because maybe not everyone has listened to the last episode from a year ago. Do you have a methodology? Do you pull these out of your butt? Do you have spies? Do you have metrics? I mean, you, you do a good job of setting forth some pros beneath each of these risks, and they sound plausible to me. But how how do you think about doing this very quickly, and then we'll get to what you think the top risks are?
2: Methodology is impact of risk imminence of risk, likelihood of risk, the three of those things put together for the year. And risk to whom, to what? Risk to the global macro environment, to the global macro economy, um, and uh, the global macro or political stability, those two things together. Um, we have about 200 people in the firm, they spend months all putting together their ideas. Uh, Cliff Kupchin, who's chairman of the firm and myself, lead the process. Um, it goes through a lot of iterations, cutting room floor. Most importantly is when it comes out, we keep it on our homepage the whole damn year. At the end of the year, we go back and we see how we've done. I think it's really important that we do something like yeah. this. So, so how you did you do you hold yourself? So last year
0: you were a little my recollection is you were a little bit of the view that lots of folks were overly scared and being crybabies and yeah. the country was great and the world was great. And stop your whining and everything's gonna be fine. And I feel and I was a little bit more apprehensive about the world. And you seem to be a little bit more apprehensive this year.
2: I am more apprehensive looking forward to 2020, but I think for 2019, I think we were on the money. We were much less concerned um, that things like North Korea were going to blow up. So what was much, the number one risk last year? Uh, number one risk. Well, the funny thing, was number one risk last year was something we call bad seeds. And we said there are lots of these big structural geopolitical problems that are being sown for a longer term harvest, but actually there aren't a lot of risks that are gonna come out this year. So it was the first time that the top risk of the year was kind of a misdirection. It was telling people that all the headlines out there really aren't about this year. And the fact that the markets were at you know, record highs at the end and the fact that you went through the Mueller report and not a hell of a lot happened, the fact that you go to Davos and everyone's still comfortable. I mean, I'm deeply concerned about the long-term political trajectories of many things that are happening, not just in the US, but in the world as a whole. In yeah. fact, more of the world as a whole, but not for 2019. And I actually think we can came out pretty well.
0: So can we talk about one thing quickly that's not in here? Yeah, sure. That I've been starting to worry about because I worry about, because I'm one of these people who worries about dread diseases. I was going to say pandemics. Yeah. Yeah. So the coronavirus, Mm -hmm. that's very troubling to me and to my family and to a lot of folks. Yeah. Uh, Can you say something about that? Yeah, definitely.
2: Yeah. So I want to say something very broad about that, which is that even if the US-China relationship was good and it's not, the fact that China is on track to being the world's largest economy is assertively, it's a good thing for China, it's a really bad thing for the world, right? In ways that should be obvious to people. Number one, it is a middle income economy, right? Which means, for example, they need a lot more coal for energy. That's bad for the climate, right? I mean, these are people that all, they don't have cars yet, they want cars. They don't eat meat yet, they wanna have improved Western type diets. So their carbon footprint is gonna increase massively. We don't trust their data. Their governance is bad. You know, there are so many things, they don't have rule of law. I mean, when the United States was at that level income, our governance was not very good. You know, you just don't focus more on higher, you know, hierarchies of Maslow's triangle when you're trying to get your people just basic food on the table and part of the global middle class. And the coronavirus, is a big piece of this. I mean, the reason that it's exploding in China is because they have a bigger economy with people that travel all over the country and all over the world, but a lot of their people still engage in practices, lack of health quality, lack of hospitals, lack of data, lack of political responsibility that befits a country that is not in the first world. And so that's a serious problem. Like if the same coronavirus was happening in Japan or the United States, first of all, probably wouldn't have happened because they would have had much better ways to have stopped that disease from transmitting itself from animals to human beings. But secondly, if it happened, we'd have much better capacity to identify it, recognize it, and stop it. And we don't with China. So never mind the fact that they're communists and they're state capitalists and they're, you know, authoritarian. The simple fact that China is going to be the largest economy in the world means that our understanding of global governance is going to become worse more risky, more problematic, more volatile, more uncertain. And the coronavirus is a part of that. And part of the reason why our number two and number three risks in the world for 2020 this Related year are China. about China yeah. is precisely that reason. Why do, have, why do you have two? Because one of them has to do with the decoupling of the US and China technological systems from each other. And that are really, those are global ramifications. That's the rise of a virtual Berlin Wall determining like, will the UK still use Huawei 5G, and as a consequence, will the so-called special relationship break down with the US and very much more limited possibilities of a US-UK trade deal and other countries. So, so the risk is what then? The, the risk of, well, one, it's that globalization follows a very different trajectory, which means constraints on the possibility of global market exposure, global growth, all of that, and and the growth of a global tech war, where we each wanna kind of undermine the other side, where The third risk, which is about U.S.-China relations, has more to do with the constellation of other things that the U.S. and China find problematic about each other. Human rights with the Uyghurs, Hong Kong, Taiwan, East China Sea, dun 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 So we could have squished them together and made them one massive risk about U.S.-China constellation. We, We thought that would be too complicated, frankly.
0: And you needed 10. We could have had another one. (laughs) I mean,
2: believe me, there were other risks that hit the cutting room floor. But but so with respect to these- I mean, South Africa is not in here. It could have been easily. They were kind of 11.
0: With respect to these two different risk categories relating to China, how do you explain how that matters to the average American?
2: Well, I mean, as you saw from Mike Pompeo the other day, the average American doesn't care about Ukraine. Uh, Can't find it on a map. He doesn't think that NPR can find it on a map, which was a lie. Um, And I know that woman, but that's beside the point. Do you
0: carry around unmarked maps? (laughs) (laughs) Like
2: who- who does who does that? I mean, does that oh, mean do you know God. do you know Mike Pompeo? Uh, I've met him. I don't know him. Yeah. Did he did he give you a geography quiz? He did not, though. I've been in the White House before where they've showed me maps and I've asked them. He definitely he definitely buttons I, all the way up to the top. You think? Yeah, yeah, yeah. See, I would say of the people that would definitely button all the way to the top, I would put Mike Pence at the top of my list there, <laughs> right? right? I think everything is buttoned when it comes to Mike Pence. I think the buttons on things that don't even usually have buttons when it comes to Mike Pence. Yes. Yeah. He's got ceremonial buttons.
0: Hear more of my conversation in just a moment.
1: This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline, because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds. Thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magirite is right for you at Canva.com, designed for work. Canva.
0: Should you have had a reference to the coronavirus and, and this being another consequence of the state of affairs infrastructure-wise and governance-wise in China? Because... That's the kind of thing that gets people's attention. Well, These well, long-term sort of yeah, yeah. You know, global skirmishes about technology is hard for people to get, but they they understand when people go to the hospital and die.
2: Yeah, I, I think the issue is that China creates, whether it's around cyber governance or around pandemic modeling, or it's around even a big sudden series of bankruptcies that they weren't aware of, couldn't handle, or have been secretive about. I mean, simply put, China's going to be outsized on these risk lists for these systemic reasons. Like we weren't aware the coronavirus a few weeks ago was, a, was about to show up on the field. I'll say one thing that should be surprising to people is right before this report came out, Soleimani was assassinated. And yet Iran is not a top risk here. Well, I'm going to come back to herring. Iran
0: because you call Iran a red herring. And I that, did. You see, it's right up here at the top of my notes. Yeah. See this? I have coronavirus. That's a ballsy call, right? And then I- That's a ballsy call. <laughs> yeah, yeah it, could <laughs> be a, it could be a shitty call. I don't think so. I think Honestly, it was right we're on the gonna, money, my friend. We're going to go through that, but, yeah. but we're going out of order here.
2: Okay. I didn't first know you had, all, had we, an order. You didn't tell we, me you had an order. We started with two and you three because you mentioned
0: China. Oh. Okay, so we skipped the first risk, risk number one.
2: Which is the one that is most aligned with you?
0: Well, my you know my interests. I know it's aligned with me, but it's the first time you've picked a risk like this. And the other things on the list are things like, as we talked about, two China risks, India. Very clever. India gets modified. Modified. That's very is very clever. Did you come up with that? Uh, No, I didn't actually. I didn't think you did. (laughs) (laughs) I I I don't think you have the. You're a smart guy. I don't think you have the puns in you. (laughs) Um, You have climate change on here. You have. Uh, Shia crescendo, discontent in Latin America, Turkey. I also care about Turkey. But number one is domestic American politics. It is, yeah. What's going on? Well, you know what's going on. But uh, I want you to tell us what no. you think is going on. My folks know what I think. Yeah. I tell them every week. You tell every week. Every week. Um, but but you, you refer to, let's look at page one. You say generally about all things, 2020 is a tipping point. And then in that context, in that frame, you refer to the greatest risk, number one risk, it's entitled "Rigged" mm. with an exclamation mark followed by a colon, which is an odd. I know. It's not a good look. It's not a good look. It's like, true. Two punctuation marks yeah, next yeah, to each I other. Yeah, I could have just done. And that then inflation. you have it, "Rigged" exclamation mark colon. Who governs the U.S.? Question mark There's a lot of.
2: I almost threw an Oxford. That's very right promiscuous there. You with your.
0: That? <laughs> but you don't because have a that series that could have
2: pissed off everyone. You don't have a series, but you don't need a series to put an Oxford comma. That's a beautiful that, thing. That's you very can still upset people. It's a very promiscuous usage of punctuation. Yeah. in a in a short yeah. title. You wouldn't have gone there.
0: I wouldn't have gone that way. No. Yeah.
2: No. But when I when I think about you, it, I don't think about a promiscuous use of punctuation. I don't. It's the one button thing as opposed to two button thing. That's it. You know, it's more. You're more careful. <laughs> so yeah. So
0: did Trump write this headline? No.
2: Rigged. But but that was the idea. The idea was it was supposed to look a little bit like a Trump tweet. Rigged. Hoax. So wrong. You saw when he, (laughs) you saw when he said. You do a Trump impression? Did you see when he sent me that thing? When he sent me We're going to come to that. Oh, geez. I'm saving
0: that up. (laughs) (laughs) Your, your, your hugest, most massive screw up of the year. (laughs) We're going to talk about it. I love it. Mr. Ian Bremmer. Okay, good. Your, your, your Twitter fiasco. So wrong, Ian. Your Twitter fiasco. (laughs) <laughs> we can talk about it now before no, we get to okay. the next I don't want to distract you, know what, that's, you. We're foreshadowing. Yes. We will talk about the time mm. that Ian Bremmer was tweeted at by the President of the United States because you screwed up. You screwed up, Ian. There you go. Um, and I think you apologize for that screw up, but we'll come back to that in a minute. I so, don't think
2: that's where you're going, but that's okay.
0: What is the risk with respect to domestic politics here? And why is it such a big deal in your mind? Because you didn't think so last year. Right. Last year,
2: I did not think the Mueller investigation was going to lead to anything. Um, I thought the way it was structured, you were not going to be able to show that Trump personally was involved in the Russian effort to engage in influence undermining the 2016 election. He had a lot of people around him that certainly did, like Manafort, who is now in prison. But I wasn't really worried about that. This impeachment process, I think, is significant. I think it's meaningful. In fact, I'm on the record as saying my personal view is the president should indeed be impeached for abusing power. Well, he power was impeached and should be convicted and removed and removed. I believe that. Yes,
0: but the fact that that's unlikely to happen. No, it's not that unlikely in- to
2: happen. It's not going to it's happen.
0: It's not okay. It's not going to happen. Yes, so this is maybe an odd. I think I to formulate this question. If it were likely to happen, yeah. how would that affect your perception of the risk in item one? Go in down. Words, it would It would go, go down. down. It would go down because you would have what you would have, Michael Pence. As a
2: buttoned up Michael Pence yes, as the president of the United States? But for whom rule of law is not going to be an issue. I mean, there'd be many policies he might put in place that you might not like, that I might not like. But but the point so, is-
0: so, so this that, is the way, aren't you indirectly saying or directly saying that the existence of Donald Trump in the office of the presidency
2: presents <laughs> perhaps the most massive global risk in 2020? Because of this upcoming election. Yes. In a way that I have not believed that it has put forth such an annual risk for the last three years. Yes. So what do you mean by that? What I mean is that impeachment is about to be broken as a constraint on the U.S. executive, especially this executive in the run up to the 2020 elections. I mean, he will be acquitted despite having clearly abused power in an effort to tilt the election in his favor. He is then running for election. He will continue. And that's
0: never happened before.
2: That's never happened before. And, And so and I also believe that the election is likely to be close. If I thought it was going to be a landslide in either direction, I would be less concerned about the U.S. as a risk. And part of your concern is that
0: large swaths of the public, yes. 40 to 45 percent, no matter what happens, either way, will not find the election to have been legitimate. Correct. And that is the destabilizing thing.
2: That's right. That combined with just how dysfunctional Congress will be in reaction to that. I think that there is a pretty high likelihood that we will go through elections in November and there will be a winner and we will not know if that person is going to be president in 2021. I like think there's a relatively high likelihood of that. And that's clearly never been the case. Like for Bush Vigor. Worse than Bush v. Gore. Because, Why worse? Because Bush v. Gore, I mean, even though it went to the Supreme Court, it was about a, you know a couple hundred votes in Florida. The process, the concerns were fairly tightly defined. Both Bush and Gore were on the sidelines waiting for the outcome for the Supreme Court. And even though the vote was a partisan vote by the Supreme Court, Gore was prepared and Bush would have been prepared to accept the outcome either way. So he conceded. Bush became president. Gore never got over it personally, but the country moved on. The ability for that to happen this time around, I think is much lower. So let's play it out in both directions.
0: Trump loses, we'll talk about to whom he loses, Mm -hmm. if that matters in your analysis or not. Trump loses, he doesn't go quietly into the night. Right. Do you think there's a chance, like Michael Cohen, his former lawyer, said when he testified in front of the Congress that he'll try not
2: to leave at all? I certainly think he will use every mechanism available to him. To remain in office, even
0: if he loses...
2: By all a tight accounts, election. the electoral by a tight election in a tight election. I think that, yes, he would actually try to use it. he he will certainly say that it's rigged. He will say it's illegitimate. He'll, he will talk about votes being miscast, being stolen. Um, you know, all the will, dead people voting. He, he He's already said that for the last election. He'll say it again. He said he's really won the popular vote last time around. He'll say it again. I expect he would talk about external intervention from the Ukrainians, conspiracy theories that he and others around him have already been promoting. I mean, all of those things, if it's close, you could easily bet that he's going to do that. And it's not just him saying and doing those things. You're starting to get whispers
0: of people in the electorate who, if they believe that to be true, have been saying some kind of scary things. Right. Like, we're glad we have the guns. Right. Do you think there's a possibility of significant violence in the country? Um,
2: unlikely. I don't. I mean, the United States is, I think, much more resilient than that. And I think the number of people that are politically really engaged in the U.S., irrespective of which way it goes, is lower than in a lot of other places. Complacency is comparatively high. Our voting turnout is comparatively low. A lot of people talk big, but there's not that much terrorism in the U.S. Not. I mean, again anti-Semitism is up in ways that are really worrying, but total levels of murders in the United States, gun violence actually down, right? So no, I, I'm not seriously worried about that, but some one-off issues of political violence that responds. Yeah, I would expect you'd see some of that. Some more hate crimes with it. Yeah, I would expect some so of that.
0: So suppose he leaves, separate from casting aspersions on the legitimacy of the election. I think he's got about 77 days between the election and the inauguration, the inauguration. of the next president, something yeah. like something like that. Right. Are you concerned about other things that he may do during that time
2: that will add to global risk? I'm worried more about all of the efforts he will take to delegitimize the outcome. It's more about that, especially because I think he's very unlikely to quote unquote wag the dog. This is not a guy who is inclined in any way to use or abuse military power to get the Americans involved in wars to help him.
0: Right, because you don't think he abused his military power by ordering the strike on Soleimani. In no way do I think that. And you have coined this new phrase, pet the
2: dog. Pet the dog. Yeah. So it's you have Wag pun. the Dog. Yeah. Which sounds dramatic. Yeah. What is pet the dog? Uh, pet the dog is that um, Trump's orientation to the extent that he's likely to abuse executive power for his personal interests against that of the national interest of the US is not about getting into wars. It is about- Building hotels. Formulating deals, whatever those deals might happen to be, even if he's giving away the store against the interests of the United States to show that he's the best deal maker ever. And the potential of him to, you know, work North Korea in ways that actually undermine US interest long-term, but show that he's the guy that deserves the Nobel. Uh, He tried that with the Taliban and the invitation of them on the 9-11 anniversary to Camp David. I could see him doing that with the Iranians, even though the Iranians aren't prepared for uh, negotiations, right now, certainly he would like to have such negotiations to the extent that Trump is going to do something really extraordinarily unusual on the foreign policy side. A lot of people on MSNBC have said, he's going to bring us into war. I I think the likelihood of that is actually extremely low, but it's quite possible that he would try to create deals that really long-term aren't good for the Americans. Right.
0: And that's an assessment based on sort of his track record so far, statements he's made,
2: or an assessment of his psychology. Um, I think it's a little of both, but I think the one that I count on the most is track record. It's what he's actually done and what he has tried to do and not been able to do when constrained by adults in his administration. So, I mean, you know, it's interesting. He's tried to pull troops out of the Middle East, historically, he's had a hard time with that because a lot of people like former Secretary of Defense Mattis, former National Security Advisor McMaster, others have really stopped him from doing that. You remember when the drone was taken out, um, that Global Hawk drone, $130 million drone, looks like a big bomber by the Iranians. Mattis was serving as SecDef at the time and was trying to convince Trump personally, and and I spoke to Mattis about this, to send escort, fighter jets with those drones going forward to surveil Iran so that the Iranians wouldn't hit the U.S. anymore. And Trump refused to do it. Why? Because he didn't want to get sucked or dragged into a war. And and I've seen this consistently from Trump over Syria, over Libya, like in just a bunch of, on Venezuela pushing back from Bolton. I mean, every place that you actually get a download from Trump's personal intervention when there are debates among his people, it's been, I don't want more wars. I want to pull our troops out. Let's go back to the election. And we've already
0: hypothesized for the purposes of this conversation that Trump loses.
2: Yeah. Does it matter to whom he loses? Like,
0: is there a difference between Bernie Sanders becoming the next president versus Amy Klobuchar or someone like that?
2: Well, one, there's obviously a policy set of policy implications, right? Right, I but mean,
0: for, for your purposes in talking about global risk and stability
2: right. and everything else. Less than you think. And legitimacy in mean, the election. So um, first of all, I, I don't see the Democrats having 60 seats in the Senate. I think that institutions massively constrain what individual executives can actually get done. So I worry less about the impact of a Sanders or a Warren administration on the trajectory of the country than perhaps a lot of people in the business community do. Right? I mean, a lot of people go nuts they over, have oh, my God, if Warren becomes president. <laughs> like Facebook, Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg said that Warren was an existential threat to Facebook. I mean, I think he's lying, right? I think he's actually lying intentionally. But if he's not, I mean, my God, the ignorance is extraordinary, right? I mean, it just shows a complete misunderstanding of how America works. W- will the world be in any way worse if Facebook went away? Well, sure. I mean, a lot of people would lose jobs, right? And I mean, it's a billion people that are presently. Well, yeah, a billion people plus that are connected to a Western multinational corporation that suddenly went away gives the Chinese a much greater opportunity to fill that space and to have not only companies that monetize just as effectively or even more, but will also have that data go up towards an authoritarian state capitalist country and create more of a surveillance culture from the government and weaken the ability of Western liberal democracies to flourish over time. So yeah, I mean, you don't, that's the interesting thing, right? Is that on the one hand, Facebook is really bad for our democracies. On the other hand, our tech companies are bulwarks against the Chinese from a national security perspective. So how do you deal with both this? It's a conundrum. It's it's a really problem paradox. Yeah, it's a really problematic paradox. Because you don't don't love the state of affairs right
0: now with these huge social media companies, the power they have, the ability they have to choose not to police things that are on their platforms that affect elections.
2: I worry very deeply that all of the people that focus on how problematic the social media companies and tech companies are for US democracy, aren't talking at all about what the Chinese are doing globally. Like they have to be, those. there's a Venn diagram with people worried about China and people worried about social media and, and US democracy or Western democracy. There's virtually no overlap between the two circles of the Venn diagram. That's a really bad place to be because it means you're gonna get horrible policy. And what should be, the, the overlap should be extensive. It should be extensive, yeah. Maybe not complete, but it should be more than 50%, absolutely. So now suppose- well, That was kind of a fun, see that, now that was, there was an off ramp that we actually stayed on for a while because it was one that you liked. See, <laughs> if it's an off-ramp you don't like, then you kind of want to go back right back, on, the back on. You like dip your right. toe in like, too cold for me, but you like the you like some off-ramps, so you have
0: to tell me- You're mixing metaphors now. Well, you have it's like d- Is it a pond? You, you, you don't dip your toe in the off-ramp. That's what you, you, I, don't I don't know what don't, you're talking all about.
2: All I'm saying is that you need to kind of give me better guidance for when an off-ramp is really meant to be an extensive no, diversion. We, it's organic. It is? The conversation. Because sometimes you take off ramps and you end up seeing like the largest chair in America because a place you'd otherwise never go, right? It's like, oh my God, there's the largest chair in America and you take or a Paul picture Bundy, it. Or Paul, that's Bangor, Maine. Yes. For, have you been there? That's, yes. You have? Yeah. That's, so you should open another button in your shirt. <laughs> <laughs> it's cold in Maine. Did you see, did you see how organic like, that was? That was
0: very organic. We want Thank to go people. back to your-, to your What crap. was the name of his blue ox? To your, to your, what was it? What was the name? Babe. Good job. Okay, good. Babe the blue ox. There you go. Okay. Are, you trying to, are you trying to test yes. for my Americanness. Well, I don't have a map. That, is like, that I don't have a thing. map
2: that doesn't have names on it. So I thought I would try something we else. We should probably
0: here. spend more time on that map. We should. Because you know I what? could point out Ukraine. Let's be clear. I might be close. I mean, now I've, I've gone back and checked and I've studied maps. Yeah. I was talking to somebody who I can't mention. <laughs> but a significant figure on cable news yes with whom we were sort of chatting yeah before going on air, I'm like, yeah, we should all like maybe do some practice with the maps in case the Secretary of State, you know, puts some puts a map in front of you. But I definitely would not have picked Bangladesh. You can't mention that because because I don't know. It's, it's a simple it's a thing. I mean, that's executive not executive privilege.
2: Really? Wow. See, but you don't like it when attorney client privilege. I see because like I think the easy way to remember Ukraine is just look at the Black Sea and there's a bit that juts into it. That's Crimea. That's where the base is. So whatever's attached to that, that's actually Ukraine. I mean, it's not that it's not that hard, right? I mean, and plus it's big. Geography today. Yeah
0: with Ian Bremmer. That's right. So don't you think that it means that Mike Pompeo has at the ready these maps and this is a thing that he does on a regular basis? He's probably done it more to humiliate than once. he's done it more than <laughs> once. Humiliate people, he's right? done it more
2: than once, yeah. But you'd think that it, it I just I'm surprised it works. I mean NPR is not the first place you go to whip out a map and say where the hell is Ukraine. I mean you, you, that's not I'm not going to get a high return on that. It's like you could try that with CNN, mainstream. the mainstream media, but you wouldn't do that with NPR. Those people actually are kind of bookish. Right. But you look, there's generalized lack of knowledge in America about
0: the world. Right. You are in a small subset of human beings in America who know a lot about the world. It's your business and you travel the world. Yeah. But there was, I saw, you saw this, right? They did a survey of Americans asking them to find Iran on a map. Yeah. And some people picked areas in the Midwest. Yeah, but some
2: people also <laughs> of picked, America. Some people picked areas that were literally in the middle of oceans, right? Which implies- so what's that about? It implies that people are trolling- the response to the survey so you and we it. should take so them less serious. I don't buy that people are actually picking Ohio for Iran or do Indiana Do you do surveys like this? Not that would have notably stupid answers like that. No, we don't. <laughs> do All right. I mean, how important is
0: it for us to know about what's going on in the world?
2: It's important, but I also think that the fake information that's put forward and the, and the persistence of a large number, a large minority of people that actually want to undermine the entire process really makes these conversations more challenging to have.
0: So now assume Trump wins. Yeah. They're still going to be And it's a close election. Tens of millions of people who will think based on lots of things, including their experience with interference by Russia in the 2016 election, that it's not legitimate. Is that universe more problematic than one in which there is a feeling of illegitimacy with a democratic
2: president? I'm not sure. Um, I'm honestly not sure because on the one hand, you know, Trump is more of a wild card in what he can do to rile up his base and his unwillingness to play by the rules and rule of law. On the other hand, you know the Democrats will probably have a whole bunch of legitimate reasons to feel like this election has been stolen from them. And the polarization in the U.S. is really extensive on both sides. So I think both are problematic. I don't know that I'd want to necessarily call one out as more. I think the issue is that when you get to an environment where half of the population actually thinks that the election is rigged and something needs to be done about it, the potential for black swan events to occur from either side is greater. The res- the response and resilience to a crisis is lower. The willingness of other countries to try to take advantage of that uncertainty is higher. So I'm I'm more concerned about how the country responds to an unfortunate, sudden escalation that no one anticipated in the middle of this unprecedented crisis. I mean, we've not had an election that will have gone this badly, that would have failed this badly since sort of 1876.
0: You say that in the report. Yeah. That was the election between Rutherford B. Hayes and Democrat Samuel Tilden. Correct. As you say, was one of the most hostile, controversial campaigns in American
2: history. And you think this will be worse. I think it's gonna be, I I said since, it'll be the worst since 1876. And remember we were coming off civil war, there was reconstruction, the election failed. And there were 20 delegates that both Democrat and Republican party were convinced that they actually deserved and won. And the only way you could get an election outcome was for acceptance by the democrats of Rutherford Hayes to win and in return troops had to be taken out of the south ended the reconstruction so it was a an extra legal deal that needed to be cobbled together right before inauguration to get to America being able to govern itself again in other words rule of law kind of broke down in that process we've not seen anything remotely like that in this country
0: but since in reading your assessment of the number 1 risk i'm feeling a sense of not hope and the reason is With respect to some risks, presumably there are things, and to the extent they're longer term, there are things that you can do. You can hope that there will be solutions or that there will be a, a new kind of leadership to deal with these issues with China or some of the other things you mentioned. But I don't see anything that can be done between, you tell me, between now, end of January, and November to sort of minimize this risk you're talking about. That's right. Of half the country thinking the election is illegitimate, unless... It's a landslide victory in one I guess right. it's the one, That's right. the one out. That's what you want. Is a landslide and it victory. That looks unlikely.
2: That looks unlikely. But I will tell you that if this top risk were not looking at this year, but we're looking at 2025, so it's a five-year risk horizon, this U.S. risk would not have been number one. In other words, I do think that whether it's a period of weeks or months, we will find our way through this. Institutions will work again. We will get back to not governance as usual, but governance. So I think the likelihood of this actually breaking American institutions is actually fairly low. It leading to widespread violence beyond what we saw in 1968, the kind of stuff that you see historically in Paris, for example, I think is relatively low. I'm not that worried about that long term, but I do think again because you asked me at the beginning what's the methodology, part of it is imminence likelihood and impact. The United States is the world's largest economy, it's the only consolidated superpower in the world. So anything that affects it, even for a short period of time, has outsized importance on this list. Can we do an off-ramp? Yes. Is this a short or a long off-ramp? I don't know, well, let's see how it okay, goes. Okay. So
0: I, I saw you uh, over the summer, and this is not long after your big Twitter fiasco. Oh yeah. And I gave you some grief, but I think you deserved it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so you, in, in May of 2019, and you have an active Twitter account. I do. You have far fewer followers than I have, but you, you know, it's
2: active. What do you have, a million, that. A million, two. There you go, ooh, you know, exactly, yeah. yeah a million that's and not two. exactly a million and two no, 1.2 <laughs> oh 1.2 that's even more than a <laughs> million <laughs> two 1.2 that's pretty good yeah i thought you knew numbers. Uh, no i have punctuation issues but you can't describe numbers it's okay yeah, that I mean, might that uh, might affect your
0: followers uh, okay. <laughs> like <laughs> your punctuation it looks like if you use enough punctuation it looks like you're you're trying to curse yeah like in the old comics Yeah, that's fair um ampersand yes so you tweeted yeah this is sort of a cautionary tale It is. And I've seen other people do this too. It is. This is Memorial Day. But since since you're a friend of mine and you're in the studio, I'm going to give you some grief about it. I'm more than happy. It's fine. So you tweeted a quote that you attributed to President Trump when Donald
2: Trump went to North Korea. And by the way, he was in Tokyo at the time, by the way, just to let you know, just be accurate about it. But yeah. Oh, I'm sorry.
0: Yep. Um, Trump, yeah. He was in Tokyo. And you did a thing that also, in a different context and a whole other dimension, Adam Schiff has gotten in trouble for. And that is. Sort of comically trying to paraphrase the president yep. in a way that in the modern world people sometimes think must be a verbatim quote. Quote. Yes. And you said, you tweeted without saying, just kidding, Kim Jong-un is smarter and would make a better president than sleepy Joe Biden. And people love that tweet. As a quote from Trump. I as wrote a quote that from as Trump. a quote
2: as if he had actually said that. Yes.
0: You know what? This is like the unified field theory of your flaws, also a punctuation problem. <laughs> Right. Yes. Yes. Clearly. Right. Yeah. So yeah. The quotes were. I problem. think if you. I think. the I quotes think, were problem, I think yeah. The number one global risk for Ian Bremmer yeah. is, is crappy punctuation.
2: No, but I'll tell you what. The, I thought the biggest problem was mm. is that I wasn't actually on Twitter after I posted it. Oh,
0: so you couldn't you couldn't do damage control? You posted. I had no it, idea that it was a problem. You posted it and then you went to a massage. I posted it and I was
2: in <laughs> Nantucket for the weekend. It was Memorial Day weekend. I was just screwing around, you know, and that was a mistake. So when I came back on, like eight playing, hours later, a polo?
0: so the tweet went viral.
2: Yeah, yeah, and because all these people thought, oh my God, our, our, our idiot president, yeah.
0: what has he said now? Yeah. And part of the reason for that, and this is a compliment to you, is you, you are a significant voice. You have hundreds of thousands of followers and people thought- Not one point. Well, two, though, if not, well, you know, well, yeah. you know yeah. it's I something mean, to really aspire fair. to. I yeah. mean, if you had done that, Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, maybe, you might not show one, maybe in yeah. 2021. Okay. Well, because yeah. I don't make errors like that. <laughs> I make other <laughs> kinds of errors, but I don't make that kind of a fool. And I learn, yeah. I, learn I like to learn from other, I would say this when I was in office all the time. I like to learn from other people's mistakes. Yeah. So I thought deeply about this error of yours. Yes. But people thought that you must be telling the truth and it must be a direct And I've seen other people do it. Yep. And then it's too bad you didn't have a book you were selling at that moment. Or it's did true. You? I did not. Not that I Because mattered, otherwise yeah. this would have been a bonanza It would have done you. well. Yeah, of course. So you meant it in jest. Trump tweeted at you. Ian Bremmer now admits that he made up a completely ludicrous quote. Yes. Attributing it to me. Yeah. This is what's going on in the age of fake news. Oh, look. Yeah. People think they can say anything and get away with it, which is kind of rich. <laughs> <laughs> I know it is. It been really, easy. the libel laws should be changed to hold fake news media accountable. First of all, are you in the news
2: business? No. Are you in the fake news business? No, nope, I'm in the
0: analysis business. Okay,
2: but it's fair enough. So, how, so if,
0: just tell me, just tell me as a person. Yeah. You've told me privately, but now yeah. say it to the millions of people who'll be listening to this podcast. Sure. What was it like to be tweeted at by the
2: president in that way? Uh, I mean. I was surprised, obviously, but he tweets at all sorts of people all the time. I'll tell you that um, before he tweeted at me, I had said, right, like, you know, hey, as soon as I realized, I got back online and saw that people were actually writing about it, people that were important, like Ted Lou, has a million followers, stuff like that. Congressman they were, Yeah, they were acting, and who I know, Ted Lou, right, uh, acting as if it were true. You know a lot of people, by the way, can we, small off-ramp, from the
0: off-ramp? Yeah. You do tend to mention that you know these famous people? Is that like a is that like a Davos thing?
2: No, it's kind of like relevant to the story. I mean, I don't like I'm not someone who brings up oh when I was talking to X the other day and just dropping the name. But I mean, here you're asking me specifically how this process went and the reason that I took it down since I came online eight hours, ten hours later and saw that there were notable people out there right. that had written about my tweet and as if it. it were a fact, yeah. amplifying. So I took it down immediately. I wrote this was meant as a joke. My apologies. Um, it was it was it was completely ludicrous. Uh, and part of the problem, of course, it's harder to tell what's completely ludicrous with this president, especially because the president actually the next day said something that was pretty similar to what I had actually made. He up. said worse things. He said worse things. <laughs> he said worse um, things. But still, I, I'm yeah. not Trump, and I, I neither have his followership. Um, nor am I a political figure. So the rules apply differently to me, right? I mean, he can go out and you know sort of do all sorts of things that aren't applicable to other people. And so the right thing to do was own it, apologize and move on. And to be fair, like when he then tweeted at me, um, you know, it got a lot of attention, but it's very it's very clear that that news cycle blows over yep. in a matter of hours. So, I mean, if you ask me, did it have any impact on like what I do or who I am? Right. No, not at all. And the funny thing, I thought when well, I thought you and I'd forgotten about this. I swear to God, I thought you were going to ask me about when Trump sent me a copy of one of my articles a couple months ago. Oh, no, but why don't you talk about that too? But you remember that, right? Yeah. You saw it. So, I mean, you know, he reads Time Magazine, and I wrote a piece. He was uh, robbed as man of the year. Uh, yeah, he, yeah he's, he's, you know, what it happens. But he has, he had covers before, as you know, and he's also made up one uh, that, that, in the past, <laughs> That's which is kind of funny, which you know one does. And so anyway. Have you been on the
1: cover of Time about, Magazine?
2: Uh, I have, but not as the subject. I've just written a bunch of covers. So it's a little different. News media. Uh, I mean, I write for them every week, yeah. it's I mean, it's a big, well-known. I write for them in part because internationally it has a huge followership. And I really want my stuff to have yeah. more global resonance. So he reads something. So he reads something. Apparently he does read Time most weeks. He reads New York Times all the time too, stuff like that. And uh, he saw the piece, It was about um, the RCEP trade deal, and I was arguing in the piece, because I believe that Trump leaving the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which Obama didn't get done, but Trump then left, was one of the biggest strategic mistakes, missed opportunities that we've had in the last few years. Um, And I wrote that RCEP getting larger was China taking advantage of that. So he rips out that page, he writes on it, Ian, so wrong. many more opportunities to work with or something like that, Donald Trump. In Sharpie. And In Sharpie, you could still smell the Sharpie on the page. <laughs> I mean, and I didn't go up close. I oh. mean, you could smell the Sharpie just when you took it out. He had it couriered over to my office and, and uh, and you know, he apparently, he was kind of bemused by it. Uh, it's funny, you do get the sense. Like I, I did not feel when he wrote that tweet at me before or when he sent me that piece, it wasn't out of malice, it was gamesmanship and amusement. An this act. is what he does. It's an act. Like and, shifty shift. Yeah. And the funny thing, is I take my work really seriously. I don't take myself that seriously. And so, I mean, I'm not the kind of person who, if you troll at me, it's going to devastate my day or my week. And if the president does that and he's the president of the United States and he's, he's, I would rather him read my stuff than not read my stuff. Do you have other Twitter rules of the road? We talked about Twitter last time. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And um, I think that was part of the discussion you know, is Twitter responsible for, who's more responsible for Trump being president, James Comey or Twitter? And
2: I said Twitter. You said Twitter. I definitely said Twitter. Yeah. Yeah, because I mean, not only does he have more followers than other people that are running, but also, I mean, the amplification of those followers, both from trolls and from bots and also from really effective folks that are politically aligned with him in social media. I mean, just vastly greater than anybody else has. I think that really matters. Plus, it's not just in the US. I mean, Bolsonaro in Brazil, that's how he won. Um, you know, certainly I think that uh, Salvini in Italy, I think that's how he won. I mean, these there are these figures that are tapping into tribal identities and social media is great at giving people what they want and tribal identities are the most visceral types of identities people have. So people that do that well really succeed on Twitter where my pinned tweet is, you know, if you're not following people you don't agree with, you don't like, I'm happy to help. I'm kind of the anti-tribal guy on Twitter. I'm trying to create my own sort of non-tribal tribe. The other phrase you've used To describe what may be
0: happening after the election this year is an American Brexit. What do you mean by that? I meant that after
2: Brexit happened, one of the big problems that led the UK to just eat itself for three plus years was that so many people believed the outcome was illegitimate. It wasn't just they couldn't figure out what Brexit was. It was, you know, this vote should not have happened. We need a do over. We don't know what we just actually voted for. It was the fundamental question of legitimacy of the outcome, right? And that is precisely what I think could happen in the United States, is that people aren't going to agree on what happened during the election. Speaking of UK,
0: I don't mean to call you out and I apologize for sandbagging you with this, but there seems to be an enormous
2: omission here. I don't know if you can explain it to me and to the public. It's going to be funny, I can tell already.
0: <laughs> How do
2: you know it's going to be funny? Because the way you, the wind up was too big. Yeah. Yeah, you did that. You telegraphed it.
0: Go ahead. So Meghan Markle and the <laughs> prince withdrawing from the monarchy. Could you please justify why that is not among the top risks? Because yeah. that seems
2: unforgivable to me. I'm really glad that the Brits are finally focused on deep arguments that don't matter. Because <laughs> that's, that's where they should be as a people, as a nation, as a great nation. They're very good at getting worked over and worked up on things that don't matter. Why am you happy about that. You spend a lot
0: of time in London, right? I do,
2: I think we have a big office there. I'm going there in a couple of weeks, yeah. There is one
0: thing in all seriousness, I'm not saying it should be on the, on the list and maybe you can explain yeah. your views on what the future holds for Israel, mm-hmm. which time immemorial has always been a hotbed of controversy and risk of conflict.
2: Yeah. What's I, gonna happen? I think it's important to recognize that Israel-Palestine is much less of an issue today for most of the players in the Middle East than it has been 10 years ago. Well, what about
0: for the Palestinians?
2: The the Middle East is much less of an issue for the US than it was 10 years ago. We don't need the energy, for example. And if you ask people in the region what their priorities are, it's Iran, it's Yemen, it's ISIS, it's Syria, it's Iraq. It, it, It ain't Israel, Palestine. Which means that the Palestinians not only are getting more and more screwed, but their options are getting more constrained. And I think that it is certainly true that Trump is no, nothing close to an honest broker between Israel and Palestine. And in fact, no American presidents have been since Carter, really. But he is an honest broker between the Israelis and the Gulf Arabs, which is geopolitically more important. So I think one of the most interesting things that will come out of the peace plan is the possibility that the Gulf Arabs will respond constructively.
0: And by the Gulf Arabs, you're referring to?
2: The Saudis, the Emiratis, the Bahrainis, Oman even Qatar, even though there's a fight internally there, plus of course countries like Egypt and Jordan, uh, Morocco, countries that matter um, in the region. And so I think it's interesting that the, re- the geopolitical realities in the Middle East have shifted irrespective of whether it's President Trump or somebody else. And they've shifted against the Palestinians. They've shifted geopolitically against the Iranians and that creates an opportunity. And, and I think that this this effort to put the peace plan forward right now is also linking to the fact that everyone's worried about Iran and the Palestinians are getting the short end of the stick, And so they're certainly not gonna accept this outcome, uh, but there could be movement geopolitically in the region on the back of all this. So where do you think we'll be in five years on that? I think that there will be more normalization of relations between Israel and a bunch of Arab states. The United States will have less of a role in the Middle East and there's an open question as to whether any Palestinian government will be able to unlock the aid that is potentially on offer to them, as well as a road towards a two-state solution.
0: Going through a couple of others, we're running out of time. You mentioned Greta Thunberg was at Davos. Number seven on your list of global risks is, you call it, politics versus economics of climate change. Yeah. What's your assessment there?
2: The economics are becoming more costly. The world is actually snapping back with the resource limitations uh, that exist, as well as the extreme climate conditions that are causing real issues, not just in people living in, in equatorial Africa or South Asia, but even in Australia and in California Indonesia. But the politics from governments are still very incremental. There's still nowhere close to being able to effectively respond to this. And uh, that is creating geopolitical friction. It's leading some private sector actors to start taking matters into their own hands, particularly because their own, their publics, their cons- Consumers are prepared to hurt them on brand if they don't. Uh, Microsoft was a you know, big announcement, for example, that they're going to go uh, not only carbon neutral for each year but, by 2030, but carbon negative by 2050 for the entire history of their firm, which is really important. It's really interesting that that's, they're doing that because the people, when I was at Davos last week, the people that were most excited about the Microsoft announcement were the Indians and the Chinese because their interest in climate is not how much they emit today. It's not how much they emit per capita it's how much they've emitted historically to the planet compared to that of the United States and the Europeans. And if this, if Microsoft is saying that's the right way to look at it and the other private sector does it, that gives them a lot better capacity to really try to press what equity needs to be in handling climate change. Now, here's the problem. The people in Europe for the green parties and AOC and Bernie Sanders, who are really promoting Green New Deal, have absolutely no interest in responding that way. They're only focused on domestic responses. What they need is a green Marshall plan. That would be equitable, but that's not where the dark green left is in the U.S. and Europe. So we're heading for a very dark green left. Yeah, yeah. As opposed to just like, you know, light green or moderate green, the people that are really committed to spending a lot of money to responding, but they're not committed to spending any money to responding to the problems that are much more legitimized long-term to the Chinese, the Indians, and others in emerging markets, developing markets. And I think that from a global perspective, right, that should be really addressed by these people. It's so interesting that the far left in the United States is really only far left on equity when it comes to Americans and their real interest in the rest of the world is pretty limited. And I, I have a problem with that. Come it's on. a
0: complicated question, yeah,
2: of where people's concerns should be
0: domestically or otherwise. It's a little bit like um, you know, on the on the planes when you used to be able to smoke on planes. Yeah. You know, there's a smoking section a non-smoking section. There's yeah. really no non-smoking section. Cuz sure, just dealing been. with that, yeah, of course. It's air. It's air. <laughs> if you had the first row behind the non-smoking section, it's such if you behind you. the smoking section. Yeah. You know, there was a lot of secondhand smoke. Yeah. Um And so it seems like we're a little bit in a a world in which people are assuming you can have smoking sections and non. It's another sections. reason
2: you should undo another button. By the way, <laughs> smoking sections on planes. Global in the warming. No, just nobody oh. in that position was only unbuttoning one button. I mean, that's pretty clear.
0: Oh no, there were a lot of there were a lot of buttons. Yeah, there were a lot of buttons. you, you also want me to put my shirt collar over my blazer? No,
2: no, no, no. <laughs> you could do that, but you need a different a different, <laughs> different shirt, shirt for that. Yeah. yeah, and a different personality. No, no. I think your personality <laughs> would work personality. for that. I'm telling you, I think we could have that happen. You right. know, you know, neuroplasticity, right? Yeah. So the, the brain will adapt to you actually changing your fashion. Say something hopeful about the future. You'll still be here. You got to do better
0: than that. Really? That's pretty hopeful. I will also still be here. Okay. Yeah. On that note, Ian Bremmer, thanks for being on the show again. great. Always a pleasure, my friend. The conversation continues for members of the Cafe Insider community. To hear the stay tuned bonus with Ian Bremmer and get the exclusive weekly Cafe Insider podcast and other exclusive content, head to cafe.com slash insider. Right now, you can try a Cafe Insider membership free for two weeks at cafe.com slash insider. I want to end the show this week by talking about something that everyone experienced on Sunday. Like all of you, I was heartbroken, shocked and dismayed to learn about the untimely death of basketball legend Kobe Bryant. And not just him, also his 13-year-old daughter Gianna and seven other people in a helicopter crash. It was a terrible thing and the loss was felt deeply by so many people not just in this country but all over the world because of the kind of player Kobe Bryant was and because of the kind of person he was and because of the magnitude of the loss As I think President Obama wrote, Kobe was just undertaking the second phase of his life, which promised to be as significant as the first phase. So whenever greatness is lost, exceptionally early, it causes a lot of sadness. And so that afternoon, notes of mourning came in on social media, on television, in newspaper articles, and lots and lots of people expressed themselves. But I have to tell you, that evening, when I tried to relax and not do any work, and maybe escape a little bit from news and politics and all this other stuff that we talk about on the podcast every week i turned on the grammy awards and bear in mind that the grammy awards are supposed to be about fun and largely an escape but of course there was no avoiding recognition of the loss of kobe bryant and for among other reasons the actual grammy awards ceremony was occurring in quote the house that kobe bryant built and when the host of the grammy awards came out alicia keys she addressed what everyone was thinking and feeling and mourning about right away. And I'll tell you, when bad things happen, you want to hear good words spoken. And it's not always clear what you need to hear. And the best and most genuine people know how to speak from the heart, know how to say what people need to hear. And it must have been a crazy afternoon at the Grammys, with all the scripts and the jokes and the intros and the songs and the pieces all planned and pre-planned and rehearsed, for days and weeks probably. And all that was upended by the untimely death of Kobe Bryant. And Alicia Keys said, better than anyone else that day, what we all needed to hear. And I know that we're gonna do what we're here to do. I know that we're gonna all
1: join together and do what we do in happy times and challenging times. We're gonna sing together, we're gonna laugh together, we're gonna dance together, we're gonna cry together. We're going to bring it all together. We're going to love together.
0: And I'll say also, for all the talk about how artists and athletes and others should stay in their lane and they don't have important things to say, on Sunday night, when it came to grace and unity and empathy, and yes, a certain kind of leadership, it came from a recording artist. It came from Alicia Keys. And then she ended her remarks about Kobe Bryant by saying,
1: And we're going to make sure that we are celebrating the most
0: powerful energy, the most beautiful thing in the world, the one thing that has the power to bring all of us together, and that's music. Amen. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Ian Bremmer. The senior audio producer is David Tattashore. And the cafe team is Julia Doyle, Matthew Billy, David Curlander, Calvin Lord, Sam ozer and Jeff Eisenman. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.